0: Well, good evening, everyone. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And I want to welcome you tonight to our Ralph Miliband Program event about the challenges and the opportunities arising from the so-called gig economy. Well, I think, you know, you will agree that it could hardly be a more opportune time to have this discussion. Um, Not only is there growing activism around this issue, notably here in London, but you can't pick up the newspaper in the last few weeks without hearing about a major court case, an English court case, a European court case or elsewhere that's dealing with this issue, often about very fundamental issues about what it is to be a worker or what it is to be employed. So we've got a, a really great uh, a team of people here to talk about it tonight. Um, I'll just introduce them sequentially, so Rimi Balaram um, um, is a senior researcher at the RSA um, where she's the lead researcher in their project on the so-called sharing economy. Um, And she's previously worked at the Work Foundation, at the IPPR, the Institute for Public Policy Research, And um, she's done a number of fascinating reports, um, not just on questions to do with the labour market and inequality, but also to do with police, um, cities, and a number of other subjects. Um, Next to me is Jason Moyer-Lee. He's the General Secretary of the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain. Um, He was earlier involved in, I think it's true to say, in the London Living Wage Campaign. Is that...
1: Uh, right? Yeah, at the University
0: yeah. of London. So he, he, he was a, an activist, I guess, in the London Living Wage Campaign, um, a campaign he got involved in while he was at the University of London as a, as a PhD student um, in economics. Now, the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain, its members have been among the driving forces behind some of these cases that I was talking about earlier. And I think it's a, it's, it's a very interesting thing It it has been to see the sort of uh, role of labour organisations making advances for workers in some of these very precarious situations, precarious in terms of the labour market, in terms of their residential rights and so on. So the the members of this union include couriers, security guards, cleaners and uh, last but, well not last but not least, drivers so th- those, are our, those are our two speakers. We're going to first hear from them sequentially, then I'm going to ask them a question or two, chair-led discussion it's called, and then we're going to turn it over to you and we're going to have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. So before we do that, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speakers tonight?
2: Hi, everyone. I'm Brimi Balaram, and I'm a senior researcher at the RSA, and today I'm really excited to talk to you about the research that I've been doing over the past year on the gig economy. And I was actually just wondering if we could start with a show of hands from people in the audience, because I want to learn um, if any of you have used any of these platforms before. So have you ever used used Uber to hail a ride or uh, ordered uh, curry from delivery, for example. Okay, quite a few of you. <laughs> and have any of you worked for these platforms? Okay, <laughs> one person. But I think that it's important to understand that even if we're just participating as consumers, we still have a stake in the gig economy, and uh, we still have a lot of power to try to uh, influence the progress of how the sector evolves. So that said, I just wanted to start with our definition of what the gig economy is so the rsa refers to it in a really specific way we talk about it as the trend of using online platforms to find small jobs which are sometimes completed immediately after request or on demand so we compare it to actors and musicians who go from gig to gig because workers in the gig economy are sourcing one job at a time however they're doing this by logging into an app or clicking through to a website So essentially, each ride an Uber driver accepts is a gig or a single job, and similarly, each booking a helping cleaner makes to tidy a flat or every errand that's run through TaskRabbit is a gig. And as you're hearing me describe this, you're probably wondering what's new here, and I think that's fair to ask. A lot of commentators have said self-employment is certainly not new. We've seen the casualization of the labor market take place for quite some time now. And I would agree, I think, that the work itself is not new. And actually, what's new here is the increasing adoption of a platform strategy by companies. So this is the idea that you can convene an online network or community and position yourself as an intermediary that's merely connecting these different users together. And I think this is allowing some companies to distance themselves from traditional employer obligations, such as guaranteeing minimum wage. I want to also be clear here that... Just because a company uses a platform strategy, that doesn't necessarily make them a technology company. So you could be a transportation company or a logistics company, for example, and you can use technology in this way. <laughs> can you hear me now? If I stand, uh, so gig work has become increasingly controversial because these intermediaries are classing these uh, their workforce as self-employed rather than as employees, for example. And I think that's why it's also important to clearly distinguish between gig workers and genuine freelancers or micro-entrepreneurs, for example. So I've seen a lot of statistics where the two are conflated, and I think that can be quite problematic because the issues that these different groups of uh, self-employed people face are quite distinct, and employment status is a particular problem for gig workers. I also just wanted to make the point (coughs) that In the sharing or the gig economy, value is actually being created in a different way. So traditionally, value comes from a product or a service, but in the gig economy, it's actually coming from the users themselves, so it's coming from this network of people. And I think that this is really important to understand so that we can begin arguing that the workers who are creating this value should be um, entitled to a greater return. So why did the RSA set out to do this research and what what were we trying to accomplish? So we set out to explore how platforms can become a catalyst for fair, fulfilling work in the modern labour market. And I want to make it clear that we were undertaking this research before uh, our chief executive, Matthew Taylor, was appointed by government to undertake a review on modern employment practices. Um, And so what we were really interested in was better understanding the nature of the gig economy And we wanted to to do this in order to be able to later weigh in on some of the more thorny issues, um, some of the complex issues around employment law. So we partnered with Ipsos Mori, uh, which is a polling company, to conduct the largest survey on the gig economy in Britain. They surveyed nearly 8,000 people over the age of 15 face-to-face, and we designed the survey so that it covered questions about jobs and the workforce itself, so what kind of work is being done and where, who the gig workers are, and how we can understand working patterns, earnings, and motivations. So this first question is, how big is the gig economy? And we estimate that there are currently 1.1 million uh, gig workers in Great Britain. And I think that for some people this might seem like a small fraction of the workforce, but actually this is nearly equivalent to the size of uh, NHS England. So it is actually rather significant. And we know that it is going to grow. So we also asked people, how many people are considering gig work in future? And nearly 8 million people said that they would consider this. So there's a lot of scope for the gig economy to grow in the UK. And in terms of the services that they're currently providing, so I think that a lot of people assume that the gig economy is just Uber or Deliver because that's what's highly visible. But only 16% of uh, the services um, that are being are being provided. Are focused on driving and delivery a third of the services are um, focused on skilled manual or personal services and the majority of gig workers are actually providing professional creative or administrative services so that's 59% of gig workers and this chart over here uh, is kind of a breakdown of all of the different services that are being provided so for example with professional work people are, are offering consultancy legal advice or accounting services through websites or apps like Upworker, Freelancer, or Talmix, and then similarly if they're um, pursuing creative or IT work through a gig economy platform, um, they might be undertaking a writing task or performing graphic design or web development. Um, and I think it's helpful to see this breakdown because you can sort of see the diversity of services that are being offered and also the diversity of skill sets within the gig economy. And in terms of who's working in the gig economy, uh, so gig workers are actually twice, more than twice as likely to be men. And this surprises people sometimes because they assume that women who might have caring responsibilities, for example, would be drawn to the flexible nature of the gig economy, but actually the statistics uh, mirrors the gender split in self-employment more generally. And in terms of a breakdown of age groups, so the gig economy is... a Uh, is much younger. So gig workers are much more likely to be between the ages of 16 to 30 than other self-employed workers or employees. 86% of gig workers are under the age of 55. And young people, again, are particularly drawn to gig work. So one in four young people would consider some form of gig work in future. And of the young people that are currently undertaking gig work, 15% do it because they can fit it around their studies. And gig workers are highly skilled, so 44% have degrees. And now that we sort of know what kind of work that people are doing in the gig economy, it kind of tallies with their expectations because a lot of people are performing professional or creative um, types of work. And how frequent are the gigs? So surprisingly, not, people don't actually work in the gig economy that often for the most part. So about half work less than monthly. And in terms of the hours, 80% work 16 hours per less um, per week or, or less and a minority, 8% work 35 hours or more. <coughs> what we don't actually know is how many hours people are doing in total, so we know that 62% of gig workers are actually supplementing their income, so a quarter of them are also full-time employees, 12% are also part-time employees, um, 24% are self-employed, so that means that they might have a micro-business on the side and they're just trying to top up their income, um, so we don't know how, much work, uh, how, how many hours they're completing in total. But of the hours that they are doing, because we know that they're not doing that many for the most part, um, it makes sense that they're not earning as much. So 61% earn less than the taxable income threshold of £11,500 from gig work. And 31% earn less than £4,500. We also were really interested in the motivations of gig workers. And we found that over half said that they were drawn to better opportunities or (coughs) flexibility or pay. Um, about a third said that they wanted to make extra money and then a quarter said that they couldn't find sufficient work through their means. And I think that kind of speaks to wider issues that are cropping up in the labor market but it also suggests that the lower barriers to entry within the gig economy uh, might be a benefit for some. So we had a question in there about control and freedom because it's a common refrain that we hear in the gig economy. Um, and so 63% of survey respondents um, had said that they agree that this type of work allows them to have more freedom and control over when they work. And when we thought about this, and we thought about this, the other types of um, work that are cropping up in the, in the wider economy, we could kind of understand this. So if you were, for example, we're comparing this to zero-hour contracts where the employer has a lot of control or power over when you work, then you can see why gig work, and when, when you have more flexibility um, over your hours, might be a little bit more appealing. But that said, that means 37% of people do not agree that this work allows them more freedom and control. And I think that this kind of hints at why um, some people might say that gig work can be exploitative. So ultimately, it does come down to this central issue of freedom and control um, for for the most part. So some gig workers have been feeling like platforms are exercising control over them akin to employers, and they're starting to question whether they should really be considered self-employed. And increasingly, gig workers are vying to be recognized as workers, which is a third status under the law that would entitle them to more (coughs) rights, um, such as guaranteed minimum wage or holiday pay. And I know Jason's going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, But I just wanted to provide some context. So this was a chart that we provided in our report. Um, And the full chart has – it sets out – the different rights and protections that each of these uh, these types of worker have, and their legal obligations, um, or sorry, their tax obligations and uh, pension contributions. Um, but why we made this chart was because <laughs> the worker status, in particular, um, many people didn't really seem that familiar with it. it. It's not commonly used, and we felt like it was being misrepresented sometimes in the media, for example. Um, and so we just wanted to help clarify. Uh, employment law for people. And so I think the main takeaway here is just that there's these two overarching categories. There's self-employed and an employee. And within the self-employed category, uh, there was a Supreme Court case uh, where Lady Hale had set a legal precedent. She had said there's two forms of self-employment. And so a self-employed person is a person who is in business for themselves and enters into contracts with clients or customers to provide work or services for them. And then the second type of self-employed person is a LIMBY worker, and they are registered as self-employed as well but they provide services as part of someone else's business and their contract is not with their own client or customer but with another party so for example that could be a platform and you'll see from left to right that there's a progression in terms of the rights that you're entitled to Um, and then there's also just some examples of of different platforms under that are using these different statuses so an example of a platform that's classifying gig workers as self-employed would be TaskRabbit, and an example of a platform with gig workers that have been reclassified as workers would be Uber, and an, another platform that, that similarly reclassified their workers is Staff Heroes, but Staff Heroes has voluntarily decided from, from the onset that their workers would be classified as agency workers, and this entitles them to even more rights. Um, and there's a platform in the States called Managed by Q, and It provides personal assistance to people and they have actually um, classified their workers as employees but to my knowledge there is no platform in the UK that does that. So in terms of the sorts of change that's needed uh, so I think we should be careful about assuming that all gig workers are workers because I think that these platforms operate in diverse ways um, and Not all of them are misclassifying their workers. So, for example, there's a platform called Grub Club. Um, It is essentially a platform that facilitates separate clubs. So they have amateur chefs, and then they also have um, people that are interested in unique dining experiences, and they essentially match the two. Um, But they really do just act as an intermediary, and it is quite arm's length. And so I think that it really needs to be decided on a case-by-case basis um, but the government obviously recognized that uh, the, that we needed to kind of keep pace with the way that these businesses were changing, and we needed to do that by reviewing the law and so they had asked matthew taylor to to conduct his review, which was published in July. but we had also previous to that uh, set out some recommendations in terms of the law that the government could undertake um, and i won 't go through them in detail, but i 'll just kind of say some of the headline things where we also recognized there was a need to clarify the law for both workers and businesses, and we would support the Taylor recommendation that workers should be, from day one, given a statement that tells them uh, what they are classified as under the law and what their rights and protection should be. And we said that there was a need to determine misclassification by giving workers more power to hold businesses to account under the law. And recently a Bayes Select Committee report came out and it said that Uh, we should be properly resourcing enforcement of the law, and we would definitely agree with that. Um, And so they had suggested that we levy levy greater sanctions on employers that were breaching the law. But I also think that we need much more expansive change. So to truly truly transform the gig economy, more expansive change is needed in the marketplace. So I think while focusing on the law and enforcement is obviously important, the long-term objective is to resolve problems of capital culture, and market distortions. And I've included some examples here of what I mean by that. So a lot of these startups, um, to scale in the gig economy, uh, they've been turning to venture capital and private equity investors. And scale is really important in the gig economy because you have to essentially maximize the network effect uh, in order to be successful. And so they need a lot of capital up front. But when you turn to these types of funders, it essentially restricts how you're governed. So you can't um, share profits in the way that you would necessarily want to if you were a cooperative, for example, um, because you're first and foremost, you have to make a return for your investors. And they also have a disproportionate uh, influence on how you're governed. And I think that the market also reflects a culture in which growth is glorified and disruption is revered. And we can sort of see that because there's not much diversity in the size of businesses within the gig economy. So you might have these small local uh, platforms that are thriving in particular areas, but then you have these big global corporates on the other hand, and you don't really have anything in between. You don't really have any medium-sized businesses that have been allowed to scale on their own accord. And that's because the market is skewed towards this winner-takes-all phenomenon, and it's compelling businesses to compete on those terms, and I think that's also affecting workers. So, our recommendations and the report are sort of divided into two. Uh, The first set is really exploring what's possible within the current paradigm. So, how can we support gig workers in the short term by developing the wider infrastructure of the gig economy? And so, this first recommendation about government collaborating with platforms, civil society, and workers on a charter for good work in the gig economy was really inspired by the Scottish Fair Work framework. And they had set this up in Scotland... Um, to identify some principles and good practice for what fair work looks like overall. And we thought that similarly you could do that for uh, gig economy workers. And you could do this for a number of reasons. So I think one of the reasons would be it would be really important for the government to signal that they value workers as much as they value technological uh, progress. And I also think it's important to try to support these businesses to harness innovation in the best interests of workers. And finally, I think that we need to sort of change the way that we approach regulation. So in the UK, uh, regulation of the sharing of the gig economy has kind of happened in two ways. It's either businesses have been left to self-regulate, which means that they sort of oversee their own affairs and um, their own operations and kind of keep government at bay, or there's been quite a top-down heavy-handed approach and we see that sometimes in other places in Europe so for example Uber is banned in Italy and increasingly the government is starting to intervene in the UK but for the most part it has just left it to business and I think that by convening these different actors together we can try to uh, include more perspectives so earlier when I had asked you know who's participating in the gig economy, I think that we all have a stake in what happens, and I think therefore that we should all be represented in terms of how we, how we try to formulate next steps in terms of progress. Um, I don't know how much time I have left, but I, I can go over some of these recommendations in more detail in the discussion, because the second set of recommendations is really about how do we disrupt the current paradigm. Um, and so this is really about what needs to happen over the long term and we thought that primarily we could encourage sustainable business models to take shape in the gig economy and so a couple ways of doing that would be for the government to create uh, different forms of investment um, so for example we said that they could set up a long-term equity investment fund and this would enable startups to to have some capital but not have to not have the pressure to Uh, make a return as soon as possible and so that might start to change the culture and we said that they should do this in order to support and nurture platform co-ops so there's a big platform co-op movement in the states um, that's taken off so you have platforms like Loconomics which are a cooperative alternative to uh, TaskRabbit for example but we haven't really seen the same sort of cooperative movement take off in the UK Um, so we were kind of thinking of ways in which we could encourage that. We also thought that the government should seek to modernize the Competition Act in the UK, and so this would address some of the market distortions that I was talking about earlier. So I think that workers would be better off if companies didn't seek to make inroads in the market at their expense, and so I think that one way in which we might be able to do something about this is by changing the Competition Act in the UK, especially in light of Brexit when we have this opportunity to do so, to ensure that workers' interests are protected alongside that of consumers. So, if you wanted to follow up on any of the data or the stats, um, the report is online. It's called RSA Get Gigs. And um, I'm happy to talk through any of the recommendations in the discussion. Thank you.
0: So, we'll just move straight on to our second speaker, Jason Wiley. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Everyone hear me? Uh, I'd like to start with a point of common ground. The RSA report on the gig economy, which Brumy co-authored, talks about two competing narratives, which Brumy alluded to at the end. On the one hand, you have the anti-gig economy people who see the gig economy as entirely negative and want to ban it. And on the other hand, you have the pro-gig economy people who think it's all positive, innovative, and beneficial. The RSA report attempts to navigate the middle ground between these narratives. Although in quite a different way, we too do not see the so-called gig economy as entirely negative or positive. Many of our members like a number of different aspects of their jobs. We do not believe the so-called gig economy should be banned, but we do believe the companies operating within it should obey the law. We do not see TFL's decision to not renew Uber's London license as a victory for workers rights we see it as an impending redundancy with no remedy for 40,000 low-paid workers workers who are closer to actually enjoying their employment rights than most of their private hire driver colleagues who work for other companies one thing to note before I proceed is that my comments are focused on the sectors in the so-called gig economy where we have members namely couriers food delivery workers and private hire drivers so if we start with the legal issues, which Burmi covered a bit. On the face of it, UK employment law, with regard to employment status, is a total mess. Sometimes a worker is a type of employee. Sometimes an employee is a type of worker. Self-employed people can be workers or not. And the Equality Act 2010, the Trade Union Labor Relations Consolidation Act 1992, the Employment Rights Act 1996, and the TUPE Regs 2006, all have slightly different definitions of the concepts. This is compounded by the fact that EU law has its own idea of what it means to be an employment relationship, which is somewhat different from the British concept. And the European Convention on Human Rights doesn't contain the word worker or the word employee, even though many aspects of UK employment rights are based on the convention. However, it's not as complicated as it seems. And the best description of the three-tier system of employment status, is Lady Hale's passages in Bates von Winklehoffy, Clyde & Co., which we heard about earlier. In sum, there are three broad categories. Employees with maximum employment rights and who are on PAYE, self-employed independent contractors who are carrying out a business or profession on their own and contract with clients or customers, and Limby workers. These guys are self-employed and do their own taxes, but carry out their work as part of someone else's business, and not their own and as such have a number of employment rights including minimum wage and paid holidays the problem of employment rights in the so-called gig economy essentially boils down to a dispute about which category couriers private hire drivers and other workers other individuals fall into we say they are limby workers and entitled to basic protections the companies say they're independent contractors and business on their own account and therefore not entitled to employment rights. Indeed, this was the nature of the dispute in all of the cases that you would have seen in the news recently. What we've seen in case after case, whether it's the City Sprint courier, the Addison Lee private hire driver, the Addison Lee courier, the Uber drivers, is that time after time individuals have turned out to be workers even though the companies they work for have said they are not. Now despite what the companies, or Matthew Taylor, might say about the law being terribly confused, such that no one can make sense of it. Anyone who has read these judgments knows that the judges tend to be pretty emphatic and sometimes scathing about the individuals in question being workers in law. This point is made out not just in case after case in which the judge finds the individual to be a worker, but it's also seen in the incredible lengths to which these companies go to prevent the appearance of worker status for example by updating and issuing newly worded contracts with eye-watering frequency. A classic example of how these companies simply choose to disobey the law can be seen with the Addison Lee Courier Department. One of our members, Andrew Boxer, who had successfully taken another courier company to tribunal over workers' rights, applied to Addison Lee for a job and was told that he could start work there as a courier. But then when senior management got wind of who had been hired, the head of Addie Lee's Courier Department came out and told Andrew he couldn't work for them because he might bring a case against them and it costs a lot of money. He also told Andrew that Addie Lee had appealed against our earlier victory against them on worker status and said, quote, your union is going to win, end quote. This guy was not only the head of the Courier Department, but also Addie Lee's only witness in our case against them, And Adi Lee's appeal is based largely on his evidence. And even he thinks the couriers are workers. So how is it possible that so many companies throughout the courier and private hire industries are able to deny their workers the employment rights to which they're legally entitled on such a mass scale and get away with it? The answer is not rocket science. The first problem is there is virtually no government enforcement of employment law. So the burden of ensuring companies respect the law falls primarily on the workers themselves who need to take out employment tribunal claims. The second problem is that from July 2013 until very recently, there was a regime of vicious employment tribunal fees which were so steep that they resulted in a reduction of nearly 70% in claims. The third problem is that even when a worker does win a tribunal claim, the consequences for the company tend to be negligible. This will change a bit with the recent CJEU judgment in SASH Windows. But to give an example, the implication of our judgment in our case against, in the judgment in our case against CitySprint, was that the company had been depriving its couriers of rights to which they're legally entitled for years. But the only consequence was that CitySprint had to pay two days holiday to the claimant. No fines, no sanctions, no incentive to obey the law. The IWGB has been responding to these problems by taking out test cases to establish across the board that couriers and private hire drivers are indeed Limby workers. And with the exception of Deliveroo, which I'll say more on a bit later, every case we have taken out that has been decided so far has resulted in either a judgment or an admission from the company that the individuals were indeed workers. The IWGB has also been campaigning around employment rights and pay, and have won a few London Living Wage campaigns for pushbike couriers. We've also been actively calling on government to enforce the law, to introduce proper consequences for companies who think they're above the law, and to increase the number of employment rights that Limby workers have so that they're on a more level playing field with employees. And it seems our message is getting through, because the last Labour Party manifesto called for all of these things. Now what's the government done in response to the problem? The government's responded to the problem of employment rights in the so-called gig economy by commissioning Matthew Taylor, Tony Blair's former director of policy, to conduct a review into modern employment and make recommendations on how to better regulate it. This review was highly problematic for a number of reasons. First, the panel of experts was biased from the beginning. In addition to Taylor, there were three other people on the panel. One of them was Greg Marsh, who is the former founder and CEO of a company called One Fine Stay, which is like a luxury version of Airbnb. And he was also a Deliveroo investor. He didn't divest his shares in Deliveroo until four months after the review commenced. He disclosed this to the review, and the review chose not to make it public. So a quarter of the panel were gig economy investors. Another person on the panel was Diane Nickel, who's from a law firm called Pinsent Masons, which is a corporate law firm which markets itself as representing employers. In fact, if you go on their website, there's all sorts of stuff about how they uh, advise employers and how to deal with industrial action and mass holiday claims and whatnot. So another quarter of the panel were corporate lawyers representing employers. And these people were not counterbalanced by any trade union or worker representation. Second, the review adopted the narrative of flexibility versus employment rights. This is the preferred narrative of gig economy companies. There is nothing either logically or legally to suggest there is a trade-off between flexibility and employment rights. However, this false dichotomy is repeatedly suggested by Taylor in media interviews. Third, the review is replete with legal errors, not just minor pedantry, but matters which go to the heart of the entire review, For example, the review repeatedly suggests that the three employment categories are employee, worker, and self-employed. Now, given that Limby workers are a subset of self-employment, it is patently incorrect to present worker and self-employed as mutually exclusive. Also, the Taylor review suggests that companies are liable for national insurance contributions on behalf of Limby workers. And Taylor even suggested that this national insurance liability is the main reason companies in the so-called gig economy don't want to engage workers. However, this isn't true. Nick's liability is only triggered for employee and officeholder status, not by Limby worker status. Given the high-profile nature of the review and the fact that Taylor probably could have met with any employment lawyer he pleased, the fact that the review got so many things wrong is nothing but astounding intellectual laziness. This intellectual laziness is further evidenced by the fact that the RSA's report gives a detailed and legally accurate overview on the matter in question. Had Taylor read his own institution's report, the Taylor review might have been a bit more coherent. Fourth, the main feature of Taylor's report is just how much substanceless fluff it contains. This is exemplified, for example, in the foreword, where it says the report, quote, issues a call for us as a country to sign up to the ambition of all work being good work. From time to time, people have asked me what as chair of the review I would see as success. While I would be proud to see our recommendations enacted and our strategic proposals fully debated, more than anything, I hope this review will come to be seen to have won the argument that good work for all should be a national priority, end quote. And another tidbit from chapter two, Quote, but we also think now is the time to organize our national framework around an explicit commitment to good work for all. As we have talked to people about good work, employees, employers, academics, advocacy organizations, and interested citizens from all walks of life, we have been impressed by their enthusiasm for this ambition. End quote. Many of the recommendations are so generic or vague that their value is impossible to assess. Fifth. Some of the recommendations, such as reducing statutory sick pay rights for employees or changing the basis of minimum wage entitlement for workers in the so-called gig economy, would make things considerably worse for low-paid workers. Sixth, the review failed to get to grips with the problem at hand and notably failed to recommend the total elimination of tribunal fees, even though a panel of seven Supreme Court justices unanimously found the fees later to be unlawful and discriminatory. The review failed to focus on government enforcement of employment law and failed to recommend a major increase in employment rights for Limby workers. These reasons are just a very brief overview of the problems with the review. So where do we go from here? We need to continue to beat these companies who are appealing against our past victories. For example, Addison Lee and Uber. We need to deal with Deliveroo, the notable anomaly in the spate of recent employment status cases. The Deliveroo case was decided based on contracts introduced by the company just a couple weeks before the hearing, designed specifically to help them defeat our claim for worker status. In the Deliveroo decision, the CAC panel recognized that the riders didn't have any say over the terms of their contracts. They recognized that the substitution clause would hardly ever be used by riders, that the clause may have been put in to defeat our claim, that the clause may put delivery in breach of regulatory requirements, such as around health and safety, and they recognized that the majority of the riders in the bargaining unit were likely to want IWGB to collectively bargain on their behalf. However, the panel dismissed the claim because they accepted evidence from a couple riders that they were allowed to have a mate do a delivery for them and therefore weren't required to work personally. Clearly, this decision is problematic, to say the least. We'll be announcing how we are going to respond to this shortly. The IWGB will continue to bring more cases and argue for stiffer sanctions. We'll also be expanding the campaigning side of what we do. Whenever we campaign, we need to look at who the relevant actors are and what the pressure points are. For example, corporate reputation. In the matter of employment rights in the so-called gig economy, corporate solicitors are a major part of the problem. Their role in drafting what everyone knows to be bogus contracts, designed expressly for the purpose of denying low-paid workers their rights to paid holidays and minimum wage, goes well beyond aiding employers to enjoy their right to a decent legal defense. These corporate solicitors are enablers, and so far they've come out of the whole thing unscarred. It is never their corporate reputation which takes the hit, rather that of their clients. And indeed they make more money every time we take out a case. So it's time to shift the cost-benefit analysis for these guys, and we're currently exploring campaign options around that. So if you have any ideas, let me know after the talk. I want to finish by zooming out for a moment and looking at the bigger picture. It's fantastic to see so much media, think-tank, academic, legal, and press interest in employment rights and exploitation in the so-called gig economy. This huge interest has shown a big spotlight on the matter, and I think will help lead to some substantive change. This interest is generated in large part by the perceived use of technological ingenuity and by the impression that the way in which Uber or CitySprint engage workers is an entirely new phenomenon. I would argue, however, that the concept at hand is not a new one. Purposely misclassifying people who work for you as independent business people in order to avoid giving them rights to which they're legally entitled is simply the latest trick used by companies who want to benefit from the fruits of the labor of others while simultaneously avoiding the moral and legal responsibilities for these people. In this manner, misclassification of employment status can be seen in the same vein as agency workers or outsourcing. For those who aren't familiar with the concept, the idea of outsourcing usually shows itself as an institution hires a contractor to do the low paid work for that institution, such as cleaning or catering. And almost invariably, even though these people are working in the same building uh, and ultimately benefit the paymaster that hires the contractor, they're on inferior pay terms and conditions. Now, the RSA report has estimated the gig economy at about 1.1 million workers. Just to put it in perspective, some estimates have suggested there's over 3 million outsourced workers. Sometimes these business strategies are used together. I once represented a cleaner who worked for a hotel. The hotel manager fired her, but when we challenged them, he claimed she didn't work for them, but for the outsourcing cleaning company. We went to the outsourcing cleaning company, and they said she's not our employee, she's self-employed. And this is precisely why we need to nip the practice in the bud. Otherwise, just like outsourcing, it will spread to other low-paid service sector jobs. Imagine going into a Costa in 10 years' time and your barista is not an employee of Costa but an independent contractor with a five-star rating on her hat, who makes the coffee for you and then pays a commission to Costa. And it's in this bigger picture context that I want to tell you about Daniel. Daniel is a gay man from Kenya, the first gay Kenyan man to get married in fact. He now lives in England, and for the past eight years has worked as an outsourced cleaner. Some of his colleagues have subjected him to a campaign of homophobic harassment, calling him derogatory names, telling him to sleep with women to cure his homosexual problem. And on one occasion was told that, quote, all gay people should be murdered, burned alive, and hanged, end quote. This type of abuse is rife in London's outsourced cleaning sector. And as the institutions whose buildings these cleaners clean rarely get involved to sort this type of situation, one is left simply dealing with the cowboy contractors. Daniel works as a cleaner here at the London School of Economics. Whatever actions the LSE may or may not have taken, the problem has not been resolved as Daniel is currently crowdfunding for his employment tribunal claim. You can donate on the crowdjustice.com website. Daniel's being supported by his union, the United Voices of the World. As Uber tries to insulate itself against responsibility for its low-paid drivers, through the use of bogus employment status, prestigious universities and other institutions insulate themselves against responsibility for their low paid workers through outsourcing. So to the media, academics, lawyers, politicians, and think tankers who are interested in the matter of employment rights in the so-called gig economy, please pursue your interests. But also do not lose sight of the bigger picture. And don't forget about Daniel.
0: Okay, well, thank you very much, both of you. Um, as I said, I'm going to first just ask a couple of questions and then um, I'll, I'll open it up for, for everyone else. So let me just first um, ask you, Bremi. Um, it's really a very general question, but thinking about your presentation in the round, mm-hmm. to what extent is the phenomenon you were discussing a function of technological change and to what extent is it a function of a kind of re-Victorianisation of social relations in our society. I mean there is a there's a general trend where people are hiring people to look after their older parents or their children or their cleaners. There was a period in the middle of the 20th century where that was less so and there was a Victorian period where it was prominent for middle class people. So could you just reflect on that? I mean, because some of your prescriptions sort of emphasise the technology. You, know, you could have a platform cooperative, for example, mm-hmm. which would suggest that there lies some of the solution. But what if it's actually being driven by these larger social changes, and it's not fundamentally technological?
2: Well, I think it can be both. Yeah. So, so I think that uh, at the beginning I had said, you know, what's new, and the work is certainly not new, and. I think that casualization of labor and, and as jason mentioned these companies have been wanting to distance themselves from workers in various ways outsourcing is one way and then i think because of the development of online platforms and companies being able to incorporate pl- a platform strategy uh, in the way that they operate that has also enabled another way of being able to distance yourself from workers so i think it's both the technology and the sort of cultural change or uh, I think it's just it's the changing nature of obligation. I just feel that increasingly employers are trying to find ways in which they don't have to necessarily fulfill um, all of their requirements under the law, so guaranteeing uh, minimum wage, for example, or paying holiday pay. So, so I think it can be both, and I do think that that aspect of um, changing business models and that online platform is an important phenomenon that we need to take into consideration because I think it could ultimately be more empowering for workers. Like, so I kind of mentioned this as well in terms of the workers and the users are creating value themselves um, within a network. And, and so I think if you did move to a, a model of um, where it was a, a cooperative platform, I think that it would be you know, a really great way for workers to feel like they were more, more empowered within the economy.
0: Okay, let me just ask you, just stick with you for a minute and, and ask you something else. Um, I, mean, I mean, the figures that you put up, um, they were very, very interesting, but the basic question is, to what extent is it meaningful to aggregate all of these people in, in a category? Now, if we think back before this technology and this gig economy, there were always different sorts of self-employed people. There are barristers with massive skills who are self-employed, and there are... Care workers who can easily be replaced with self employed, And and the meaning of those categories is very different. And some of your data sort of showed you know the number of people with degrees and the number of people in skilled work. Is there some sense in which you know the problems are so different for these different categories of people that they really should be treated separately, even though they're operating under the same legal codes?
2: So I think that one of the reasons why we decided to undertake this work and better understand how many people were working in this way was because the numbers in the, in the media and in other sorts of think tank reports, um, even by some academics, they were conflating all forms of self-employment. And as I mentioned, that was problematic because I think that there is a distinct problem for wor- workers in the gig economy because there is a sort of issue of employment status. But I also think that the way in which we talk about the gig economy in the media can be quite problematic because it tends to hone in on specific forms of uh, gig economy uh, work. So I think that it's important for people to understand that actually the gig economy is really diverse and increasingly we might see that um, more higher-skilled jobs are are, um, subjected to this sort of online platform as well because You know, there are platforms that are emerging that are lawyers on demand or doctors on demand. Um, So I think it's important for people to understand that this isn't just confined to low-skilled labor.
0: Okay, thanks. Um, so let me turn to you now, uh, Jason. I mean, I, I've got two questions again. In a sense, question one is ends and question two is means. So I'll, I'll just, just start with question one. I mean, you, you ended by saying, what's the big picture? And in a way, this is to ask you for an even bigger picture. Um, you know, employment, if you go right back to it in, in, in the British common law tradition, is a master and servant relationship. And what's distinctive about it is that whilst it's true on the one hand that it's a contractual relationship, it's also an authority relationship between the employer and the employee. So radicals and utopians have have long hoped to move beyond a world in which people are subject to the authority of others when they, they don't sort of check out their democracy when they enter the workplace. What's your union, or just you maybe, what's your relationship to that sort of critique? Because in a sense, establishing people as workers under whatever of these headings that you were using is reinforcing something about that long tradition, which for a certain utopian tradition is something that one would want to move beyond and away from.
1: Uh Well, my short response would be, as a union, we have to deal with reality on the ground as it is now. If we deal with utopia, we'll hemorrhage membership. Mm. Um, So in terms of reality on the ground, Mm. it's not that we're trying to impose some new status on these guys. Mm. They are fulfilling all of the obligations of workers to the extent that control is a factor. They're already subject to that control. They're simply not obtaining any of the benefits. So what we're saying is these guys are workers in law. It's simply that they're being deprived of the rights associated with that.
0: Okay, I mean that's 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 clear and, and very reasonable. You, you don't want to speculate on what the sort of longer term significance of that would be in terms of the development of. <laughs> uh, not really. Okay, <laughs> and that's uh, probably very responsible of you. Um, l- let me ask you this separ- se- second question. So, so now it's it's about it's about the means. I mean and. You know, trade unions, like other activist organisations, have often confronted this problem, that there are different ways of exerting pressure to pursue these means, including these these immediate goals, which have been the bread and butter of trade unions for, for many, many years. And in particular, there's a sort of a mobilisation strategy you know, where you create pressure through that. And there's a, a legal strategy where you go to the courts and you try and get support that way. They're not, of course, mutually exclusive, but what exactly do you think the relationship between these two things is in the case of your union and its strategy? Does it think about those two things? Does it ever see a trade-off between those two things? Does it see one as supporting the other?
1: Well, I don't think we see see them as a trade-off, but rather complementary. So the union, uh, the IWGB has always been involved in uh, campaigning on the one side, and that's usually for things like the living wage or whatnot or better terms and conditions at the University of London. Uh, And on the other side uh, is the legal strategy, by taking out um, cases. Most of the legal work we do is not stuff that makes it into the news. It's representing cleaners and whatnot and disciplinaries and grievances and that type of thing. Um, But I think we need to pursue both. And in some disputes, a legal strategy is a bit more effective. uh, In others, uh, campaigning is. I think it would be very, very difficult for us to run a campaign against CitySprint for example, or against Uber, and just campaign for them to recognize everyone as workers. Um, given how much these companies have invested in resisting that, uh, I think it's only going to happen uh, when they're forced to do so by the courts.
0: Okay, thanks very much. So look, I'm going to turn it over to everyone else now. Um, just uh, indicate if you've got a question, and um, I'll, I'll call people. Uh, we'll start off with just singles. So. Um, wait for the microphone and just say who you are and where you 're from too please
3: uh, Hello, uh, my name's Nico of no affiliation i 'm just interested um, is it Is it wise to analyze the gig economy uh, as separate from the whole economy? Um, I mean surely it 's all connected uh, one of the one of the problems is that um, people everybody has an aspiration to be, you know, a Prime Minister of the world, and not everybody can be Prime Minister of the world. Um, and also, um, there is a kind of, universities I feel are, do kind of lie to their students and tell them, and there is this kind of impression that everybody who has a degree can be successful and make it and have loads of money and have a great life. Well, it's just not actually true, and I bet quite a few of even LSE graduates or Cambridge or Oxford, Oxford graduates leave university and go into minimum wage, wage jobs, and some of them even never get any further than that so isn't it important to look at the the whole picture uh, rather than just taking one aspect of it in isolation
0: okay
2: yeah I mean so I think I kind of alluded to this that I think that some people are in gig work because there are problems in the wider labor market so when you saw that statistic about a quarter of gig workers being motivated because they couldn't find sufficient work elsewhere and we're actually doing this other uh, research at the RSA right now which is analyzing the whole of the workforce. So it's basically segmenting the whole of the labor market. And uh, we've come up with seven different groups, and we found that there's actually two types of precarious workers. So it's a kind of um, traditional, like, the sort of stuff that you would see in the headlines in terms of flexible workers being precarious, but actually also there are a lot of people in full-time traditional employment and, and on proper contracts that are in a, a precarious form of employment because they're on chronic low pay and they aren't able to save and they don't have any progression opportunities. Uh, they feel like they might be at risk of being discriminated against. So I think there's just, it's a bleak employment situation and we're just trying to highlight that there are these sort of different nuances even within the wider labour market. But I think for this particular piece, we were trying to respond to what we saw as an emerging trend and try to shed, trying to shed light on that specifically.
0: Okay, yes, can we have this uh, woman here, please? And don't forget to say who you are and where you're from, please.
4: Uh, Hi, my name is uh, Jovita, and I work in the corporate sector. Um, Now, um, because I work in the corporate sector, there is an absolutely different trend that I'm noticing. Uh, I hear, uh, I go to lots of conferences across Europe. I'm constantly hearing within the corporate sector that there is a rise in the gig economy. Um, There are a whole bunch of people who are vying to get into these, uh, you know, you can call them flexible or adaptive jobs, which this corporate sector is, uh, you know, offering students fresh out of colleges. Um, But, of course, I also understand that there is a different sector who are, uh, you know, there are cases that you just highlighted that are struggling for basic rights, I mean, do you think that, as he said, you know, putting everybody, and answer I agree with you, putting this entire, you know, uh, bunch of people in the same gig economy sector, is that helpful? Because perhaps there are people jumping into this not realizing what's uh, being offered to them. There are also cases where I very clearly know that people want to jump into this gig economy because um, some of these contractual roles are better paid than even permanent roles. So that's an absolutely different world altogether. If we classify this entire world as one, how are we going to offer them you know, their respective rights? Right. So I
2: don't think that we should see the gig economy as monolithic, and I don't think it's appropriate for any, like, anybody to approach regulating the gig economy as if they were all just low-paid gig workers. I think it's important to understand that sort of diversity within it. Um, and I do think that recognizing that, that even there are some people who are you know, working for Deliver or Uber who are happy because they're maybe supplementing their income, they're not as reliant on it, um, and it might just be working for them. Whereas I think similarly at the people who are in these sort of highly skilled jobs within the gig economy, I think some of them might be unhappy and and we sort of need to recognize that there is a divergence and and you can't just, I think, um, group everybody into these like particular
1: homogenous categories.
0: Did you want to comment on that, or
1: um, I guess the only thing I'd say is I think it's very difficult. I, I agree with, with some of what Bernie said. I think it's very difficult to put to even put a label on it because you know there's no single definition of the gig economy. Um, so you know, in some ways, um, you might have seen in the news the Pimlico Plumbers case. There's an issue about whether well, the guy who works for Pimlico Plumbers um, uh, was a worker and entitled to employment rights. Now you don't usually think of Pimlico Plumbers as the gig economy, um, but it's been referred to in the news uh, as the gig economy. And in some ways, his situation um, was quite similar to the situation faced by couriers. So sometimes it's used as a sort of uh, handle for issues around bogus employment status, or you can take a wider uh, definition and focus on the technology. Um, but even that, you know, courier companies have been lumped into the gig economy, but a lot of these companies don't have any particularly uh, innovative or interesting technology. Uh, and have been operating with a very similar model for the past two decades or f- four decades.
0: Okay. Yes. Just just, just wait. Thank you. Uh, my name's Joseph. I'm a student here uh, in political sociology. Um, you spoke... Uh, I guess this question is directed more to Jason. Um, you spoke uh, uh, a great length about... Um, what your union is doing on behalf of workers, but I wanted to kind of f- flip the relationship around a bit and ask about uh, the future of labor organizations and what the changing nature of work means uh, for labor organizing when there's no kind of factory floor, so to speak, on which these workers can mobilize.
1: That's yep. a good question. Um, <clears throat> well, it, very briefly, I think some of the big unions need to um, catch up. Uh, and you know get, get with the program, um, but I, I think one thing to kind of one myth to bust is this idea that because these people are so atomized there 's just no way of, of reaching out to them um, that 's often the kind of premise of well how do you organize in these new sectors because they don 't have a workplace they don 't have a factory and whatnot, so you, know, you do need to change the model the kind of traditional model where you have a big workplace, everyone works nine to five, Monday to Friday, you get them on their lunch break, whatever obviously that doesn 't work. Um, But it doesn't mean that there aren't relatively simple organizing tactics that do. So to give you an example, uh, in the Deliveroo uh, case, that was unlike the other tribunal cases, the Deliveroo case we had was a collective bargaining case. Uh, So we had to identify a bargaining unit, and we chose Camden and Kentish Town, which was a Deliveroo zone. Um, Deliveroo at the time divided all of London into 30-something geographical zones, and people only did deliveries in those zones. Of course, once we identified that as the bargaining unit, they eliminated the zone system entirely and couldn't understand why they would ever have used it. Um, so there, people hang out in one spot outside the Café Nero um, because that's the spot that's closest to the most restaurants, and that's where we are most likely to get pinged with uh, deliveries. Uh, and of course, when they're in between deliveries, sometimes on a Friday night or something, you might have 15 guys there. So we'd go hang out there in that spot and recruit there. Um, and with that, you know, we we're saying, uh, if you join the union, uh, you know, we're going to take out this case. We have to have a certain number of people to hit the membership thresholds. But if we win this case, everyone will be entitled to minimum wage and paid holidays and pension contributions, etc. That's a pretty easy sell. Um, so I think there are, you know, the, the tactics that need to be used, we have to adapt. And I think the big unions need to put a little bit more effort uh, into this because there's not nearly enough happening um, among the big unions in these sectors. Um, but it's definitely doable if we focus our minds on it.
2: There's also worker tech that's emerging, so Coworker, for mm. example, in the states, um, it's essentially like a, an, it's almost like an app where you can set up petitions for workers within a particular place to, um, to organize. So, for example, with Starbucks, it, the, the workers um, were challenging the tattoo policy, and they use this app to try to. Uh, to try to get Starbucks to change their policy, and Starbucks ultimately did. So I think there's new things like that that are cropping up.
1: OK,
0: um, the, the woman on the back wall there, please.
1: Thank you, and I'm from the Gender Department in OSE. And I want to ask a question about labor exploitation in a geek economy, because you're focusing on, like, for example, minimum wage, those kind of very de labor
2: exploitations from my point of view. So I want to ask, is there any gender implications in the form of exploitations? For example, how a geek economy affect female or male worker differently in terms of exploitations? Thank you.
0: So who wants to take that one?
1: are some statistics yeah. about male-female breakdown. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, we found, we found that the gig economy right now is mostly male, and I think I mentioned this, that is quite surprising to people because they tend to assume that, uh, that women would be drawn to the, to, to the gig economy because they, um, it's much more flexible in its nature and they might have caring responsibilities that they have to work around, etc. But right now, um, and we can't really hypothesize as to why, there just doesn't seem to be as many women that are interested in working in this way. Um, and it might be the nature of some of these jobs that they, if you compare them to uh, the jobs that are happening in the in the wider economy and traditional employment, for example, um, that they do tend to be quite male dominated. So driving and delivery, for example.
0: Okay. Um, so who forgot next? Um, yes, this this man here with the green uh, sweater.
3: So this current current government is um, very pro-business and some would say haven't been very strong in fighting for workers' rights, some would say. Um, Would you say... They have
0: uh, been strong in fighting for workers' rights. Have Have not, I see. I thought you were suddenly making a deeply
2: controversial point. (laughs)
3: Um, How have you seen that affecting the conversation and how do you see that affecting it going forwards? Jason, why don't you...
1: Um, Well, I I think what it's showing is that it's going to involve, it's going to require unions uh, and whatnot to be proactive in taking this action because if the government uh, had any genuine interest in this, I think we would have seen something happen uh, in the past seven years. Um, So I feel like they're more relevant than anything. Um, I think the, the... Taylor Review, well, I've already shared some of my thoughts on that. Um, Some of the proposals, I think, would make things worse. So I think we need to, and you know, his minimum wage proposal is essentially dead uh, from uh, every reading I can get from Parliament on it, so that's good. Um, But I think one thing we need to be careful about is the idea that even if we implemented everything he recommends, that somehow is going to solve the problem, because I think very, very little will change for low-paid workers in the so-called gig economy. so it's a little bit pessimistic, but I think we can't expect much from this government. Um, as I mentioned when I was speaking, the Labour Party, on the other hand, in their manifesto, called for everything that we've been calling for. Um, so if that manifesto was implemented at some point, uh, I think that would make a massive difference for low-paid workers in the gig economy. Uh, yeah.
2: If I can Sorry. just come back on that. <laughs> So I think that the government is going to respond to the Taylor Review in the new year and it's kind of their sort of last card in terms of being able to to seem like a progressive government on these issues because they've been so, uh, they've been called out recently on social mobility for example so I think we might see some good that comes out of that um, but also there is a public interest case that doesn't get mentioned very often and so this has to do with tax and the tax implications so in the budget in 2016 Hammond had tried to tax self-employed people and essentially equalize the tax between the self-employed and employees and obviously there was a backlash and he wasn't able to do that but Jason had kind of mentioned this earlier currently workers um if you're, if you're a company that uses workers, you don't pay the equivalent of employer national insurance contributions. And so that's creating quite a big hole in the budget. So I think that if the government is going to try to do something that might actually be better for workers in the long run, because um, it might deter some companies from, from even trying to misclassify their workers, they could introduce uh, the equivalent of national insurance contributions for anybody that's using self-employed labor um, in this way.
0: Okay, um, so there's a range of hands here. There's people of different ages in the audience too and everyone of all ages should feel free to ask a question. Um, but can I just start with this gentleman here with the blue shirt, who's actually being very brave because the temperature in this room is slowly declining and I see people putting on sweaters and you have managed to stay in your shirt, so. <laughs> um, so one really key stakeholder group for
2: all these companies is um, obviously uh, like the public potential customers and I'm just wondering uh, from your experience to what extent do the public respond to reports of exploitation like do, does uber lose customers does delivery um, stop having people place orders with it
1: well yep um. Well it's it's a bit hard to measure. I mean sometimes Deliveroo and uh Uber obviously are the kind of the biggest names. Um so I've met plenty of sort of progressive left-wingers who say oh, you no know, I'd never take an Uber. Um I, clearly that uh boycott hasn't caught on. <laughs> um and same with Deliveroo. Um but it, not you know I think it's good that it hasn't caught on because Uh, I don't think that's an effective solution. Uh, If you are going to refuse to take an Uber on the grounds that they don't give workers' rights, what are you going to do instead? Are you going to take another private hire company? Because they don't give workers' rights either. Um, And this was an interesting thing about the ban when TFL refused to renew Uber's license. And some of the big unions came out and said, oh, this is a fantastic victory for workers' rights. But as I mentioned earlier, we took a very different position One, the decision had nothing to do with workers' rights. And two, uh, the the private hire industry, especially in London, is notoriously exploitive and abusive. And lots of these guys prefer working for Uber uh, compared to some of the more traditional private hire companies where you have a controller harassing you and shouting at you and that type of thing. The other ironic thing is that Uber is the company that's closest to implementing workers' rights. So if you look at the kind of high-profile tribunal cases that have challenged the employment status in the private hire industry, Uber uh, lost in the employment tribunal. They appealed. Uh, We represented the drivers, and we won. They've now appealed again, and it's going to the Court of Appeal. I think they'll probably lose there as well, uh, and then lose in the Supreme Court, and then the thing will be done. The only other company that's kind of coming through the pipe in terms of big names is Addison Lee. They haven't even gotten to the employment appeal tribunal so uber is the closest one because once they lose in supreme court that's it that's the end of the road for them and they're gonna have to implement holidays and minimum wage so banning uber does not achieve workers rights for these drivers at all it sets us back
2: so i would agree that banning uber isn't um, the right option but in the states when uber was going through a lot of turmoil over corporate governance at least they had an alternative so they had Lyft, and so A lot of people were able to kind of work to vote with their feet and essentially deactivate Uber and join Lyft, whereas I don't think that we have any sort of platform alternative that's emerged in the UK and that's why I was sort of talking about the need for cooperatives in particular to emerge because I think that you know there have been a lot of people that have expressed that they they don't be supporting these types of companies but I think it's just the number of options that are available.
0: Right, uh, yes. This this woman here with who has got a coat on.
2: Uh, Thank you. Just say who you are too. We've sort of
0: left that aside.
2: Uh, So I'm I'm Wendy. I'm doing a master's degree in inequality here at LSE. I was wondering if either of you could comment on the threat of self-driving cars. So Uber has already started launching them in certain cities, and they they still do need the driver for now. But I mean, in the long term, they would much rather not have to deal with workers. So that just seems like a bit of a, like a threat for the union that you represent and for gig economy workers in general. So I was wondering if either you had thoughts on that.
0: Driverless cars, good question. Who wants to go first?
2: Uh, so we talked a little bit about this in a report. I think it's quite interesting, um, not from a worker perspective, actually, but from a like, competitive perspective, because right now Uber has quite monopolistic tendencies, but actually when this sort of new technology rolls out, Um, I don't think that they're going to be ahead of the curve. So like in the US, uh, Google's Waymo has already started rolling out and testing their vehicles on the roads. Um, And then similarly, a bunch of old school car manufacturing companies have started trialing self-driving technology. So I think that when this happens, Uber can't rely on the network effect. They can't rely on the scale of of, um, their network for success. They, They just kind of have to... Um, rely on the, the uh, quality of their technology like everybody else. So I think that that will have quite interesting implications from a, from a competitive perspective.
1: Um, yeah, obviously it's something that we kind of have our eyes on. Um, I, th- I think we're still a ways away from it, uh, is the impression I get from kind of following it in the news. Um, the, the one comment I would make uh, is just that the, the fact that they're trying to develop driverless cars, in my opinion... Uh, really rams home how bogus their narrative is, right? The the legal argument they were running in the employment tribunal is even more ridiculous than the standard gig economy legal argument because the standard argument is these guys are independent business people, we're subcontracting them to do a service for us. Uber said, we're not contracting them at all, we're their agent acting on their best, acting in their best interest and simply putting them in touch with the customer. Right? Now, it's been obviously the tribunal rejected that the employment appeal tribunal rejected that. There's a great case in California which rejected that argument as well and said, you know, Uber's no more technology company than a yellow cab is because they use DC radios or whatnot. Um, but the fact, you know, Uber is a transportation services company. You know, when you book an Uber, right, it's because you have an idea of what you're getting before you book it. You're not, you don't, you don't not expecting to get some independent car company showing up just using the app. And the fact that they're trying to develop their own cars and infrastructure and this type of thing really rams home that they are a transportation services company. They just want to find a different way of delivering those transportation services.
0: Okay, Um, I think you've had your hand up for a while in the middle there with the uh, man with the glasses. Don't forget who you are and so on for our thing. My name's Joe, and I I work at the Institute of Physics. I just wanted to ask about Brexit, uh, particularly oh. in light of employment law and perhaps competition law as well. What does leaving Europe mean for the gig economy generally and how big of a deal is it?
1: Do you want to respond to employment law? Yeah. Um, so I can't really say much about competition law, uh, but in terms of employment law, I think Brexit is an impending disaster. Uh, lots of the employment rights that we depend on, uh, especially low workers depend on um, such as holiday pay, protection against discrimination, um, this type of thing, comes from the EU. And it's not just uh, you know, the Tory government saying, oh, well, we'll just kind of put everything into UK law and it'll all be fine. Uh, first of all, I don't trust them that they're going to do that, and if they do, there's nothing to stop them from taking an axe to it uh, you know, within a couple of years or whatnot. But the other thing, for anyone who's seen the the case in the news in the past couple of weeks, uh, King v. Sash Windows in the EU, it's not just EU law, but it's the EU court's interpretation of that law, which low-paid workers, I believe, need. Uh, And this was a case, and we've seen this with the working time regulations. Uh, Before the working time regulations came in in 1998, there was no legal right to paid holidays in the UK. They came in because they implemented the working time directive, which is EU law. Um, and the working time regulations has been an ongoing battle back and forth between the U.K. courts and the E.U. court about how restrictive or expansive the interpretation of the regs should be. Uh, and it started there's, in 2014. There was a case that was in the news, um, Bear Scotland and the Employment Appeal Tribunal, um, and it basically said that when you take, based on E.U. law, when you take holidays, uh, you need to be paid roughly what you would be paid if you were working. So if you earn on a commission basis, and you have contractual hours. The UK interpretation was you'd only get those contractual hours when you're on holiday. The EU said, no, you need to get whatever the average of your commissions would have been, so that when you go on holiday, you don't have a financial detriment. The Tory government responded within a few weeks or whatnot, introducing a new law to say that you could only claim up to two years back pay of holiday because they wanted to protect (coughs) business. Now, the case we've had a couple weeks ago with uh, sash windows said, basically said that your uh, unpaid holidays, if you have an employer who doesn't provide a facility for you to take paid annual leave, which is the case in the courier companies and the private hire companies, whatnot we've been talking about. If your employer doesn't give you a facility, they don't let you take paid annual leave, then your right accumulates year after year after year. So this guy who worked at Sash Windows, uh, on the British interpretation, he only would have gotten a few weeks of holiday, they said he's entitled to 13 years' worth. Right? So that's the type of thing, and that, that is going to have a big, big implication in the so-called gig economy because now you know consequences just got real um, because you know, with a courier, we could go back 20 years to 1998 if they've been working that long. So that's the type of thing, among others, that uh, if something isn't done, we're likely to lose with Brexit. So I'm extremely concerned about it.
2: Yeah, and then I guess on competition law. Uh, so, likewise, I think there's reasons to be concerned because I think the EU as a whole is a lot better than the UK at challenging some of these big technology companies. So we've seen that with Google, for example, with Amazon, even with Facebook, and the UK hasn't really made any of those moves themselves. Um, so there isn't really any reason to, to believe that they might... Um, once brexit happens but i think that there is an opportunity for them to to change the competition law um and we were quite optimistically suggesting that they also consider workers alongside consumer interests. so i think if we can sort of push for that then it could ultimately be a better outcome but i guess we'll have to see based on their track record it's not (laughs) it's not likely
0: (laughs) okay um so I think we've probably got enough time for a, maybe two rounds if we're careful. Why don't I just take two people um, at the same time? So um, this this gentleman with his hand sort of straight up and, yep, you, and, and then the person in front. But if you could just both be a bit succinct and... Hi, I'm Abbeck. I'm a student. So uh, I know this is really specific to the taxi industry, but... Uh, last couple of years, I've sort of heard stories about Uber being pushed out of China. You talked about the losing the license in London, and I think you mentioned Italy as well. What impact do you think that's going to have on sort of growth in the gig economy? Because, you know, if they're sort of being pushed out, and you haven't, as you said, you haven't really got an alternative in terms of, you know, a kind of maybe sm- smaller example like Lyft that can kind of come in and fill that gap. What impact do you think that's going to have on the gig economy? Okay, so hold that thought, and then uh, this this man here. Yep. Hi, I'm Kevin. I'm a student here as well. Um, I guess my question just aims to dive a little bit deep into, deeper into the self-driving cars question. Um, to what extent do you feel that workers might be worried that if you increase their wages or give them more rights, make them more costly to Uber that Uber might spur on the development of, of self-driving cars. Is, is that a bargaining chip that you've felt Uber use? And, and is that something that workers are worried about? Because so why don't you take sort of one each to start with? I don't know, um, is anyone in a position to answer the first question?
2: So the, sorry, the first question was about the UK, what, what the impact would be on the taxi industry if, if Uber was banned, essentially? Yeah, I mean, I guess our position is that in terms of regulation, either giving these platforms free reign or banning them is not really the appropriate response. We need to find some middle ground. And so I think Jason had kind of alluded, you know, Uber is the closest to um, providing better protections and workers' rights because there's been so much um, advocacy and trying to challenge them and push them to get to this point. And I think that's the sort of space that we need to be in where it's not really about trying to push Uber out entirely, but actually trying to push them to do better. Um, And hopefully that will have some knock-on effects for other platforms in the gig economy. Um, I mentioned staff heroes earlier. So they they had taken sort of a defensive position. They knew that this was happening, that there was a lot of concern um, about workers being exploited and um, these challenges that were being taken to the courts over worker status. And so they decided from the onset that they were going to classify their workers in a different way. So hope, like, that's the sort of thing that you would want to see happen as a result of some of these challenges.
1: Okay, if you Can this I comment briefly on that very question briefly, too? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, just one thing to clarify, and again, I think it comes back to kind of definitions and what we mean when we say gig economy or whatnot. Um, Uber is a private hire company. So for those who aren't familiar, um, usually uh, if you're taking a a cab or taxi or whatnot, it'll be a hackney carriage like a black cab, kind of the traditional uh, symbolic black cab, uh, which falls under different regulation, or it'll be a private hire uh, vehicle, which they call minicab sometimes, uh, which means you have to book with the company and then they supply you with the car. Um, Now, when Uber first came in, they said, oh, you know, we're so different and whatnot. But they're regulated like a private hire company. And in fact, in the Employment Appeal Tribunal, they went uh, to great lengths to say that they were operating like a private hire company, like every other private hire company. So just to put it in perspective, uh, there's 117,000 private hire drivers in London. 40,000 are Uber drivers. So I think there might be a perception that kind of Uber is the only, but it's not even the majority of private hire drivers are Uber drivers, just to kind of put that in perspective. Uh, In terms of workers' rights impact on self-driving cars, To be frank, it hasn't come up. Um, I think workers are more concerned about any potential impacts on tax or on the licensing or this type of thing. It seems like a more imminent threat. I don't think there are with either of those two examples. Um, Self-driving cars hasn't really gotten on the radar yet, I think.
0: Okay. Well, look, I I fear we should bring the conversation to a close. I mean, I think we've been listening to some really um, interesting discussions about fundamental questions of political economy, really. Um, Issues that combine questions of technological change, of the changing nature of work, of law, of labour organisation, things that have been, you know, fundamental in many ways for perhaps a century and a half in a country like Britain. And what's interesting to me, anyway, listening to these speakers, is how some of those classic issues are back on the agenda. And what's more, some small amount of progress is being made with respect to them. In any case, it's something that's affecting all our lives. So, can I ask you all to join me in thanking our two speakers today?